Okay. Well, hello and welcome to Confessions of a Reformer. I'm your host, Mike Mayashiro. It's been a minute since I've released an episode. And you guys, I've got a guest on today and I'm excited to have this conversation. Um, I think you guys are going to love this too. I'm not going to tell you where we're going yet. I'll let, I'll let our guest share that with you, but um, I want you guys to buckle up and um, we're just going to jump right in. I know normally I would like, give you guys updates and stuff, um, but I'm going to skip that for a second and we're going to get into this. Um, we're going to go in a direction that I think is probably not as common on my podcast as a as other things that we've talked about, which I'm excited about. So I want you guys to put on your thinking caps, open your consideration box, um, give this person an opportunity to express themselves and share where they're coming from. Uh, and like any interview I do on my podcast, I am giving our guest full permission to say whatever they want to express what they think and how they feel. I don't need them to try and cater to any particular bent or opinion or whatever they have permission to express whatever they like. Whether I agree or not is irrelevant. I want them to get to share whatever they have, whatever is true in their world, whatever they believe. And then we all get to sort through that, right? So um, that being said, I'd like to introduce you guys to Miss Kat Harris. Oh my gosh. Hey, Mike. <laughs> what an hey, intro. <laughs> I can say whatever I want. Whatever you want. <sighs> Finally, <laughs> please, please, whatever. Yes. Um, you guys, I met Kat through uh, my friend, Carrie Lloyd, whom you've heard on my podcast a few times. She and Kat or Carrie and Kat are friends. And so we got connected that way. And Kat has a booming audience and podcast and Instagram. You guys, you got to follow her on Instagram. We'll talk about that later, I'm sure. But um, she's a spokesperson and voice and influencer specifically for women, Christian women, Christian single women, uh -oh. is that right? Yeah, in the dating space especially. So if that's anything that is of interest for you, you you're gonna want to check her out, and you'll obviously get that from this episode. But um, Kat, do you want to just like say hi and like tell people a bit about who you are, what you're doing in the world, where you are, you know, those kinds. Of, I mean, whatever you want to share in that, just give them like some kind of um, grid for who are you, what do you do? Totally, yeah. So not like my name is Kat. I like long walks on the beach. <laughs> I like hiking. <laughs> Uh, my online dating profile. <laughs> right. You can find me on Bumble. I'm I'm sporty. <laughs> um, okay, sorry. I, I told you before we started recording, I did not sleep well last night. So who knows what is about to come out of my mouth over this next hour. But who I am, my name is Kat Harris. And I uh, have an online platform called The Refined Woman. I host The Refined Collective Podcast. I have a book coming out called Sexless in the City. Hey, yo. And really my vision is to empower and equip primarily women. Although I wish I had more men on my platform because my message is for humans. My message is for any human who wants, who feels like they want the permission to dig into their lives, dig into their theology, dig into spirituality and dig into their faith. And so my hope through the blog, through the podcast, through the book, through online courses and meditation guides that I have is to really equip people to seek wholeness, seek personal growth and development, seek God on their own accord. So instead of me just giving sound bites and things that are like amenable from the pulpit. I want to give people tools to do their own work because truly I think, I think real transformation happens when we take ownership and autonomy over how we're showing up in the world, whether that's in dating, faith, career, sexuality, all of that stuff. So 
It's a little bit about what, who I am and what I do. I also love Beyonce. <laughs> I am a huge fan of The Bachelor. Um, oh my gosh, <laughs> can we do a whole episode on what just happened this last season? So yeah, I love going to the bottom of the ocean and talking deep stuff, but also feel like Life is really too short to take everything so seriously. So let's also have some fun. I love it. I, Kat, I love, okay, one thing you guys, a couple things I want to share about Kat. I love how down to earth and like, <laughs> just what's the word? Down to earth and just like cool Kat is. She's just like right there with, she's like your friend, you know, even when she's on her public platforms and just talking, she's just herself, which I think is so inviting and disarming, but also, I have such a huge value for your desire to want to equip people mm-hmm. and help them do the work themselves and take responsibility for their position, their heart posture, their contribution in a space, the advocacy that you do in that. I love it's so necessary. I think that's something that I don't see happening in the church a ton. There's not yeah. that kind of expectation or demand for the individual to show up like that. And I think that's so needed and it should be something that the church champions. So I love that you're doing that. So I'm a huge fan want to get behind it so glad you're here thank you for being on my podcast oh my gosh um, thanks for having me I'm, yeah I'm obviously yeah totally and obviously we can go in so many directions and yeah you know let's do that down the road but today i do want to talk to you about this book you have coming out sexless in the city sexless in the city first of oh. all why the title let's start there where did <laughs> where did that come from what do you mean by that oh my goodness well th- i mean the the title is and was my life. <laughs> I grew up in, <laughs> it's, it's like, it, it's kind of funny, but also painful. Cause I'm like, man, I'm 35. I'm in my sexual prime. Come Jesus, come what's happening here. So basically <laughs> you're like covering your mouth to <laughs> laugh at me. Just let it out. Just let it out. No, <laughs> no secrets here. So I grew up in Southern Christian culture in evangelical culture in Texas. And even though I didn't really grow up in a Christian home, I say Christianity was sort of the air I breathed churches on every corner. And so the lingo of Christianity wasn't foreign to me. There were a lot of extended family members that were Christians. And so when I went to a church camp in high school to chase some hot boys and became a Christian, I, First of all, my family was like, what happened to you? I came home from a church camp and I was like, guys, I have some good news for you. (laughs) I was that obnoxious new Christian that was just Bible thumping everywhere, getting in arguments about which version of the Bible was the best version. Let's fight about Calvinism. I mean, I quickly became that person and I was hungry to learn about my faith and I, I learned pretty early on words like purity and that good Christians don't have sex until marriage and that the female body is innately provocative and boys are so weak. So women need to hide their bodies. So boys don't lust. And that even though I'm an outspoken woman to be a Christian woman, I probably need to tone it down a little bit because Christian girls can't preach. And so I was kind of, I was given all of these scripts in Christian culture. And then I went to a small Baptist college and was a Bible major and more and more narratives kind of shoved down my throat. And I, I never really questioned them, Mike, because I was like, I love God. I love Jesus. And I really trust these people that are teaching me that 
their interpretation of the scriptures is on. And I, if, if I, I want to be a good Christian, like, cause I want to give God my life. And so if that means I need to be a little bit more quiet, maybe cover my body, maybe, you, you know, only hold hands until my wedding day, then I'm going to do it. And so sexless in the city comes from me finally getting to a place where, well, first I moved to New York city uh, in my mid to late twenties. And in one year I dated more than I had in a decade. And very quickly I found out that it's a lot harder to keep your pants on when you're dating. And I had kind of always been on this, on this virgin high horse, like, oh my gosh, I'm doing it God's way. This is God's best. All these other people are falling like flies, but here I am so holy. And then, I mean, I found out that my resolve was actually very thin when put in a situation to abstain. And I dated a guy, fell in love with him on the first night went home with him. We had everything but sex and I didn't feel guilty for it. And I was shocked. I was like, wait, I thought, I I mean, first of all, I like went to a guy's house. We messed around in his bed all night. We didn't technically have sex. So I think I'm all, I'm still good. But, um, that kind of set me on a trajectory of really wondering what do I believe about all of this stuff? And we actually ended up breaking up because I was, very confused about how I wanted to move forward, whether or not I wanted to have sex or not. And turns out that not having sex was a deal breaker for him. And so I went on a journey of researching, seeking God, reading scientific essays and reading books by feminists, Jewish philosophers, Christians, non-Christians, everyone that I could read about to figure out what is God's heart for sex? What is God's heart for intimacy? Is abstinence still a thing or is it an antiquated Christian norm that's no longer relevant? And so sexless in the city is the fork in the road moment where I decided to deconstruct, which I know can be a very weird, scary word in Christian culture right now, but it just means that I went on a journey of unpacking. Why do I believe what I believe and why? And is there anything, any of these scripts that I've been given that actually are out of alignment with the heart of God? And how do I find out what's really true? So I still don't know how to give the elevator pitch for the book, but (laughs) (laughs) sex is in the city, me being almost 30, not ever having sex, and then coming to a fork in the road where I wanted to search the scriptures and truth for myself outside of what I had been taught. Nice. I love it. Okay, great. That's a great place for us to get to like the stuff's on the table. One thing I do want to point out that I loved in your book, you were talking about deconstruction. You pause there for a second. You were talking about how sometimes or often when believers get to the place of deconstructing in their faith, they tend to stay there and like create a perpetual lifestyle of deconstruction. They never actually resolve to... Um, <clears throat> like maybe adjust some things, but keep walking with the Lord. They just decide to stay in the place of just questioning everything always only. And Mm -hmm. I thought the way you articulated that was so, I think, responsible. And I really appreciated it. I'm like, man, this, uh, yeah, I wish that this was more prevalent in the deconstruction space. I think I experienced a lot of cynicism and, you know, resentment and bitterness in the deconstruction Mm -hmm. world. I'm like, these guys have some great points. I think they even have like a lot of like critical thinking that matters in what they're mm-hmm. sharing, but there's also mm-hmm. a lot of baggage and pain that comes with it. I'm like, oh, that's a bummer. And so yeah. 
probably deters a lot of people who probably should be asking those questions and worse. So I love that you perhaps you take the time to just preface where you're going Mm -hmm. to really cater to your reader and and give them a a sense of, Hey, we're going here. You're okay. Here's what Mm -hmm. we're going to do as we go there. And you even give a layout of what you're going to do throughout the whole book. I thought it was just really well laid out and done as far as like making sure the person that's reading this is comfortable and set up for Mm -hmm. success and knows what to expect. Well yeah. done. I mean, I think I felt inspired. I'm like, I want to copy and paste this for my own book and do the same thing over here because it was so well worded. Thank, so thank you. For that. But yeah. Thank so um, on this subject of deconstruction, because obviously that's that's the umbrella that this sex in the city dirty you're talking about kind of falls under. Mm-hmm. You know, growing up in the church world, especially as a woman, having all mm-hmm. these like purity culture values, you know, established in your mind as this is how I'm supposed to live and this is where morality and like righteousness exists. Mm-hmm. Um, do you want to speak to that real quick, just in for the podcast audience, as far as like your attitude and approach to the deconstruction aspect of your relationship with God and the church? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's funny because I was I was talking with one of my dear friends a couple of days ago. And I go, it turns out I've been deconstructing since day one of my faith. Yeah. <laughs> and I didn't know that, or there wasn't the terminology for that. And <clears throat> I think scripture says to uh, work out our salvation with fear and trembling, you know? And I, I think what I have found is God does not have a fragile ego. God, if God is real and I believe God to be, then God isn't threatened by our questions. We see Jesus really honoring doubt with Thomas in the new Testament. We see Peter constantly getting it right. And then getting it really wrong. We see the father that was asking Jesus to heal his demon possessed son. And the father says, I believe help my unbelief. Like how that's like one of my favorite people in the Bible. I'm like, that's me. I'm like, I believe God, but I'm like, wait, do I, I don't know. Like really a resurrection. Did that really happen? That's crazy. Um, and we see that Jesus didn't resent the doubt Mm -hmm. and it wasn't threatening to Jesus, but he blessed the honesty and he met that person where they were at. And then we see King David in the old Testament, who is first of all, a total screw up, like no moral character, um, a bad dude. And yet he's a man after God's own heart, which is something I'm still wrestling with. Um, But we see the Psalms are full of David in one breath. I believe you. I love you. God, you know, the hairs on my head to the very next breath. How long will the wicked prosper? How, how long will you forget me? And so I think the, the first step to approaching deconstruction is normalizing doubt. Me having questions about what I believe is one of the most normal human experiences. Welcome to being a human, wondering, um, is two plus two four? Well, you don't know it until you learn how to count, right? Um, mm. What does Ephesians five really mean? Wives submit to your husband. What What are these things really? What are we actually saying? What are the beliefs underneath the beliefs? And I think because we have not equipped the church and culture at large to think critically, we've equipped culture and the church to have an instant gratification mentality of here's three steps to double your Instagram overnight. Here's 10 steps to meet your husband. Here's four hacks, get a six pack. Well, we've basically minimized the human experience to us to a formula. 
and we're not objects or humans. And so when we approach deconstruction, for me, I just want to normalize that it's not scary or bad or sinful. And often when we start unpacking questions, we're going to have more questions. And I remember when I was new in my faith, one of my pastors was like, you know, the older I get, the less, the less answers I have and the more, and I was like, he's probably not a Christian. (laughs) I just thought, oh my gosh, life is so black and white. And more so what I've experienced is, is that Jesus really steps into the human experience. And there's a lot of gray in that. And that can, the gray can feel really scary to us, but it doesn't feel scary to God. And really it's in the unpacking of what we believe and why that we're able to say, okay, how do I want to move forward? Is this belief system true? Is it working for me? Is it rooted in fear or freedom? And to me, that's the crux of deconstruction is unpacking my beliefs. Where did they come from? What are they rooted in? And so much of this is so much of the work. I feel like you do Mike of mindset, emotional intelligence. And scripture says second Timothy one, seven, that God didn't give me a spirit of fear, but a power, love and a sound mind. And the Jesus invitation is to have an abundant life. So am I believing a script that was given to me? That's rooted in condemnation, scarcity, lack, victim mentality, victim blaming, shirking responsibility or shame, then I can be pretty assured that that's not, that's out of alignment with God's heart. And so then how do I discover God's heart for like holistic living? And I think that's, that's the next step in the deconstruction phase. That's right. How do we rebuild? You know, the Psalm says, unless God builds the house, the builders build in vain. And I think we're experiencing a massive moment of deconstruction because we grew up in churches that didn't teach us how to use our minds or our spirits and gave us rules and do's and don'ts to cause shame often that produced conformity, but no real heart change when the Jesus way is relationship, dignity, value that leads to long-term transformation. Um, so that was a long answer and, and I can make it more succinct if you want, but I just mainly want to normalize the conversation around deconstruction and demystify it. Everyone's mm. deconstructing things constantly. Yeah. <laughs> Is this oh. chair going to hold my weight? <laughs> Let me deconstruct that and ask why. I mean, that's the faith journey, right? Is is asking, all right, do, am I going to put my faith in this thing? Let's be thoughtful about that. Mm. Totally. So good. Thank you. Now, I know when you say normalizing doubt, the the pastoral mind over here is like, Ooh, you know, I, which I know what you mean when you say this. I'm like, yeah, no, totally. But like the word doubt, I think already has such a stigma attached to it. It means like I think in Christian circles, doubt equates to um, betrayal. Right. It has like this at least on my end, when I hear the word doubt, it's like it kind of feels like, well, if you're going to entertain or consider the doubt that's coming up, it means that you are betraying the values that we've all agreed to and like decided to protect and uphold, which isn't what you're saying and isn't true, Mm -hmm. but it has that kind of a vibe. There's like this boogeyman air around the doubt. um, And the, the, we thus like throw away critical thinking. We can't think for ourselves. We have to agree with the group think and what the leaders say and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. So I love that you're, you know, articulating that and it, it does have such nuance for people depending on who's listening to you but yeah um 
Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you. Okay, we I, I want to keep going down there, but we've got I've got to get us back on. Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> okay, so sexless in the city. Mm-hmm. You gave us a, a brief intro of like you know going to camp and the bathing suit thing and the you know one piece and all the things and then the guys and oh these guys fragile. I thought it was so interesting the way you described. Because it's not like people were telling you this is what the Bible says. They were giving you a culture that was created mm-hmm. from how they interpreted what scripture said, right? Right. Or how they thought was best to follow this. And so mm-hmm. men's purity became women's responsibility. They stumble yeah. easier. Mm-hmm. They're more visually stimulated or whatever. And so now it's your job to protect these guys. And you feel noble in, yeah. you know, can you talk about the experience you were having? I know obviously you, you share this in your book, but mm-hmm. um, that wrestling match of rec of waking up to wait why is this my responsibility how did this become my job as opposed to empowering men for taking responsibility for their purity or what can you op- yeah. unpack that a little bit just your perspective yeah. from what you learned there well yeah for sure i mean i think the the first thing that made me upset was to be in a christian culture i was a camp counselor in college i did high school ministry all through college and i remember being at this camp <clears throat> And it was so freaking hot. It was like 99% humidity every day, about a thousand, a thousand degrees, right? So freaking hot. And I am not like a glistener. I am like buckets and I have BO that would rival any football team. <laughs> and so I'm at this camp and we're, you know, quoting modest is hottest all the time. And I'm wearing big baggy basketball shorts and oversized cotton t-shirts with sleeves. And so I'm like, I've never felt less attractive in my life. But like you said that I said, it did feel no, but all our brothers in Christ are so weak and they're more physical than we are. And so we want to honor, we want to have a culture of honor. And then I remember sitting down to lunch and all the guys coming in for lunch. And it was, it was, I don't know, years ago. I don't know if it's still like this, but it was like ironic for guys to wear those like seventies basketball shorts, you know, the short basketball shorts where their junk is barely in place. <laughs> so it's like, they're coming, we're over here in burlap sacks to <laughs> honor quote unquote, our brothers. So they don't sin. And then they're walking in no shirts. They don't have to wear shirts all day long, six packs, glistening, sweaty. And I was like, that is, that guy is hot. <laughs> But I was like, oh, well, I must not be sexual the way men are because clearly um, guys can wear whatever they want with no regard to me. And I felt it just felt unjust to me because I was hot and sweaty and I would have loved to run around camp in my sports bra and short shorts all day. And so that felt frustrating to me and unfair, but it kind of stopped there and I moved on with my life. And then after college, I moved to Southern California and it was interesting outside of Southern evangelical culture, all of my Christian friends at the beach would wear bikinis. And I was like, Oh my gosh, you're wearing bikinis. And it was so not a part of the ethos of that Christian culture. It was like, well, yeah, we've been doing like lifeguard camp or junior swim camp since we were four years old. We've been surfing all our, our whole lives. And like my friend played NCAA water polo. She's like, I've been seeing guys in speedos my whole life. And they've been seeing me in bikinis my whole life. Like there was nothing sexualized about that. So I thought that was really interesting, but I really didn't start unpacking the problems of the modesty message until I started researching what does 
the Bible actually say about God or about sex and intimacy in our bodies. And, and from there, I, I started questioning, what are we actually saying when we're saying stuff like modest is hottest? What are we actually saying when we put the weight of male sexual purity? And I don't even like that phrase because I think the only thing that makes me pure is the work of Jesus. Anything else is a works-based salvation that is not the gospel. Mm. And so I like to say sexual integrity, mm. how I'm choosing to show up in, in my world and take ownership for, for the space I'm taking up. So I started questioning, man, it feels really suffocating to monitor everything that I do or do not wear from the lens of, oh my gosh, if I wear the wrong thing, a guy that I uh, respect or even a stranger, an entire gender could sin. And that just didn't seem true to me. And so I thought, man, basically what we're saying underneath that is boys will just be boys. And boys are really just the sum of their urges. Boys can't control their desires. They definitely can't control their sexual appetite. So we are basically said that boys are animals Mm. and that's not what the Bible says. Mm. The Bible said that humans are created distinct from the animals and that humans, unlike anything else are very good and have the God image in them. And so I thought, man, that's actually a really low view of men and in, in dehumanizing men and saying, oh, men are actually just animals. They can't take responsibility for how they show up in the world. We've also oppressed and weaponized women. We've said that women's bodies are hypersexual. And why have we said that? And I think a huge reason why we've said that is because we've only had men in the decision-making rooms of churches and, and in our culture. And so I, I just grew, have grown more and more uncomfortable with the implications of modesty culture. And I don't think I'm not, I'm not advocating just wear nipple tassels and run around naked all day long. Like, I don't believe that either, but I think to put the weight of an entire gender sexual integrity on the shoulders of women is completely out of alignment with the heart of God. Mm. It, it is a low view of men. It it, it, it fosters and even encourages weaponizing the female body, silencing women. And if I may go this far, boys will be boys. It's just a short step from there to, she was asking for it. And that is a terrible, terrible, terrible reality to live in. Yeah. Wow. Fascinating. Thank you, Kat. Interesting. I have more questions about that, which is awesome. So yeah, so even as a guy, I'm like, so yeah. you're listening to like, um, what you're describing, I witnessed. I I went to church camp. I was, you know, one of the dudes who got to walk around with my shirt off and whatever. Um, and the girls definitely had to dress differently. And there was a discrepancy. Like the girls mm-hmm. and the guys did not look the same out there in water sports, especially or whatever. Mm-hmm. I remember early on in that experience thinking, this is kind of weird, but. Mm-hmm just getting adapted to the culture, realizing, oh, this is why now it's normal, right? Burlap sucks. <laughs> and then like yeah. guys barely wearing anything. It's interesting to consider like what that would be like having to be the one 
carrying or shouldering that. And mm. I think the whole thing about dehumanizing or yeah, like turning men into animals and treating us like we don't have control. We're not responsible for this mm. or we don't have to take ownership. Like fascinating. And I told, I don't disagree. You're right. Yeah. And it's interesting. The whole like idea of like the people making these decisions are the men in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, these kinds of things as they play out in culture, it's always fascinating to consider what was the motive behind this choice that this is how we're meant to behave. Mm-hmm. What was the driving motivator or intent for that kind of a protocol you know mm-hmm. and i wonder yeah if there were women in the room i it seems like those decisions would have been made differently and we would have had a different yeah. that's fascinating yeah yeah and i think when we do that what what's happening is we when we make the when we make a male problem a female problem or when when i make my problems anyone else's problems that is mm. it's a spiritual bypass it's spiritual manipulation. And I think it's so important with every belief or narrative that we're confronted with that we ask who's benefiting from this belief and who's suffering from this belief Mm. and the modesty message, primarily who is benefiting? Why was that the protocol? Well, who's benefiting mostly men in power who have lacked some sort of sexual integrity or don't want to take responsibility over their sexual integrity. So who's being protected? The Mm. person in power Mm. who is suffering women who in our culture are more vulnerable and who have been oppressed and weaponized. And so when I zoom out from that, I ask, well, what's the story of Jesus? Jesus was constantly confronting abuse of power We see with the woman caught in adultery, so many things are happening. First of all, it was the woman's fault, right? The man wasn't brought to Jesus. So culturally and religiously, we see in the story of the woman caught in adultery that women have no voice. They have no rights. They're treated as objects. They are the ones to blame for any sort of sexual misconduct. And culturally, caught in adultery, you deserve death. And religiously, by the law, you deserve death as well. And yet we see Jesus kneel down on the ground to this woman who has been paraded through town, been made the cause, the blame for for a mutual transaction. And instead of giving her what religiously she was owed, he stood up for her. He met her with dignity, with acceptance, with kindness and said, you who is without sin, throw the first stone. Mm. And so when I, when I challenge so much of these narratives in church culture, I kind of always go back to what are some of the overarching themes of scripture is that Jesus always stood up for the oppressed. Mm. Jesus always stood up for the oppressed. And so if we have oppression in the church, that's a really big problem. Mm -hmm. If we are having abuse of power and that's going unrepentant or unreconciled and dismissed, that's a really big problem. Mm. And so I, I want to confront that. I, I want to say to the church and to us, let's be better men. Let's be better women. Let's be better humans. Let's be better. Let's create, uh, uh, an atmosphere where there's flourishing as opposed to shame, condemnation, spiritual bypass and oppression. Mm, totally. Wow. So in the vein of where we are at this point in the conversation, the book is called sex is in the city. Your message is like, Hey girls, 
what about this? What if, you know, right. And guys, what, right. Also, what if, um, it can come across as like, well, maybe catch just advocating for women being sexually empowered and just getting more permission to get to express themselves, or whatever. And you're like, yeah, that's true. But it sounds like underneath that, there's even more of like a justice thing driving your message here. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> where, you know, if this oppression is going on in the church from men or whatever, and then trickles into how women are allowed to express themselves and thus in 2021 are allowed to engage the dating space or their mm-hmm. own sexuality or finding, you know, their life partner, whatever. Uh, can you, I don't know if I'm asking this question in a succinct way. So help me, let me know if I need to be more specific, but I'm wondering, can you help clarify or like explain the justice part of your heart here and dating culture, how they're related? And cause it's me, it seems like from what you're describing, it sounds like the dating culture is now a symptom of oppression. Is that, is that right? I think, yes, I do. And I just think there's so much weirdness and awkwardness and legalism and Christian dating. I mean, oh <laughs> my gosh. I wish Can you guys we... could have seen her cat's face when she said the word weirdness. There was like a snarl. Like just, it wasn't just like weird. It's like something's wrong with how weird this is. It is. I'm like, listen, a date is just going and spending time with another human that God really loves. You don't have to marry that person. You don't have to go on a second date with that person. You are not entitled to that person. If that person doesn't want to go out with you again, you do not have onus over that person so that none of your friends can date that person. They're not a player if they have dated multiple people. And so do I think that some of that oppression has leaked into Christian dating culture? Absolutely. Um, But I also just think that there are weird more like if we zoom out of that what is there in the christian dating culture there's fear and legalism so we've put so much pressure on dating and we put again we're putting more pressure on women than men so i i keep talking about bridgerton in a lot of my interviews because i i loved that show but i was also like hmm, this is a little triggering because it doesn't feel that different than today's dating culture especially in the church women are, are um, are to aspire to marriage in a way that men aren't required to women are, are supposed to be pure in a way that men aren't required to. Um, it's okay. If a man wants to do other things than get married, or maybe he delays marriage because he wants to be financially stable or pursue other things, but I'm 35 and I'm single in the Christian world. And it's like, all, I don't even get whispers anymore of what's wrong with her. <laughs> it's like, why is she single? There must be something off with her if I didn't get married younger. And so I think we in the church worship marriage and we worship sex and we worship the nuclear family. And it almost feels as though to be single in the church is to be JV to the varsity of the married folk, to be single. I, what I've experienced even just as a single woman is that I get less up. Op- I've gotten less opportunities in ministry and my married girlfriends almost are quote unquote safer and get more of a platform in the church because they have a man by their side. And I'm so happy for them. I love marriage. I cannot wait to have a partner in crime to do life with. I'm, I'm looking for a man that loves Jesus and wants to do life together but if I don't have that, it doesn't make me less than 
Mm. My purpose doesn't hinge upon whether I do or do not get married. Jesus was single. And so um, I think we put so much pressure on Christian dating because we're terrified of getting it wrong because we have elevated sex and the nuclear family above a lot of things. And so if the big rule is no sex outside of marriage and you got to find the one, then we approach date one with, oh my gosh, what are his intentions? And is this going to lead towards marriage? And I want to be quote unquote intentional. I don't want to waste my time. And we over-spiritualize things. Well, I don't know if I heard from God. Well, sometimes you can just go hang out with a person and not have to like have a PhD dissertation to explain to other people why you're going out with that person. Um, so I think more so in the dating space, I think we have just put so much pressure on the entire experience. And it makes me wonder why are there so many of us single? I I've, have been a part of a church in New York for years now where 80% of the congregation is single. And these, this isn't like a college town. This is career people, twenties, thirties, forties, successful, attractive, godly people. Why isn't anyone dating? I think a huge reason is because we put so much pressure on it and it is crippling to move forward in it. Mm, totally. Wow. Wow. Cool. Okay. So what do you think about that? <laughs> I agree. I think that that's, I think what you're saying is true and fascinating. And these are things that I've wondered quietly for a long time. I mean, even as a man being single, I'm aware, like, yep, opportunity gets passed. I get passed up for opportunities because I'm single. I'm not as, because I think the same whispering question, what's wrong with him? Why is he, you know, um, I think even for just singles in general, it's like, there's a, I agree with the whole JV analogy. I definitely feel I've witnessed that and have experienced it myself, but I've also seen it, you know, around me in church culture single people are not as safe. They're not as mature. They're not as actualized. They're not as whatever. There's just like this stigma. Well, they're single because they haven't fully developed as a human being yet. It's yeah. kind of like the idea or something, yeah. um, which isn't true necessarily, right? Like there are married people and single people who haven't fully explored or developed or matured, but then being single or married is irrelevant to that issue. Right. And anyway, right. so I think, yeah, I totally agree with I mean, I, I, I agree with everything you've said. I know that people are listening who are like, okay, but what if, and it sounds like you're saying, and I know they don't get to represent themselves here and that's okay. Um, Cause there are a lot of things you're not going to be able to say in this conversation just because mm -hmm. it would take too long to clarify every little nuance of this conversation. Yeah. But at yeah. the end of the day, I'm like, I think the point is we have created such an environment and atmosphere and a culture that is choking single people's ability to in freedom and dignity, pursue what it might be like to get to know and connect with and then find someone they want to share the rest of their life with. Yeah. And only certain people who are accepting this model are finding success in their ability to experience that in that context. The mm -hmm. rest of us who aren't just like saluting every little dot and tittle on the rule book. Yeah. It, you don't get to do that here without shame, without rejection, mm -hmm. without having some kind of stigma attached to you because you're not playing by the rules or whatever. Yeah. And I think yeah. those of us out here are like, um, I don't know if those rules are sanctified or holy, like they're being treated. Yeah. I don't know if that's yeah. actually God, which is part of why my conviction compels me to not adhere to what, anyway. So, I mean, yeah. my mind goes in that direction. I, I agree. I think I've seen and witnessed this stuff and I think it is a problem, which is why I love that we're talking about this. Um, and I think also um, there's a response, almost like a reaction. Um, human 
the human race, we have a consciousness, right? A collective consciousness, but then also individually. And as that continues to refine and develop and expand, the confines that we've had to navigate our worlds through become less and less tolerable, right? Mm -hmm. It makes less and less sense. And it's not because our morality has degraded necessarily. I, I'd propose it's actually because our uh, awareness and ability to understand robust truth and love and benevolence from God mm -hmm. doesn't fit into this Petri dish that they've created for us that we're supposed to, you know, whatever. Um, yeah. And so then I think, it just even actual self-respect and conviction demands that we question and challenge these impositions that don't mm -hmm. actually line up with how, who we've experienced God to be. Right. So I, these, I mean, I could go on, but yes, yeah. I agree. And I think these things, and it's fascinating. And I mean, you're coming from a very more specific and then obviously feminine perspective on this. Mm -hmm. um, but, and I think you've also done a lot more research than I have into the subject at large, but yeah, I'm like, cat preach, say it, poke <laughs> at it, expose yeah. it. We got to talk about this for sure. Yeah. And I think even just maybe one more little tidbit, as you were saying that I felt like I wanted to share is like, first of all, I love marriage. I think marriage is beautiful. I yeah, same. want to, I want to be married. I hope to be able to have children out of my own body someday. That would be such a blessing. I would love that. And I think I want to just be curious about the culture that the culture and cultures that we've created. And it's been interesting going live with this book of just the hurt and disappointment that I've walked through personally and privately of being like, wow, like up until this point, this is the biggest thing that I've done in my life. Like I wrote a book mm. and I am with one of the top three biggest publishers, like, wow. I want to celebrate that. And if I was getting married or if I had just gotten engaged, my world would rally behind me, throw parties for me, <laughs> probably buy me gifts. Mm -hmm. And it's been hard and sad to see, oh man, I don't, maybe a lot of people don't understand. Like this feels like a big deal to me. Um, but I think it's shown me, it's revealed to me how we have a culture that honors and celebrates nuclear family and marriage, which I want to, I have been a bridesmaid 17 times. I'll be a bridesmaid 17 more times. I will throw you your engagement shower. I will be at your bachelorette party. I will host the game portion. We will have dance parties. I will be at your wedding. I will be at your baby shower. I will buy your kids a bunch of gifts that they don't need. And you're not the only person that has beautiful things to celebrate going on in their lives. So how can we create a culture of honor and celebration in the church mm. that, yeah, we love marriage and we also have people in our lives that are doing incredible things and living out God's calling and purpose. And let's celebrate that. Let's mm. celebrate the book deal. Let's celebrate getting out of debt. Let's celebrate paying off the mortgage. Let's celebrate running the marathon that you trained for. And it makes me sad that we don't have a culture within the church that celebrates and honors different milestones outside of marriage and family. It, wow. it just makes it more isolating as a single person. Wow. Wow. My milestones just aren't, don't matter as much is kind of what it feels like. Wow. Totally fascinating. Whoo. That's really good. Okay. So Kat, for the sake of time, I'm going to move us to a, <laughs> 
I want to ask you, okay, so obviously purity culture. Well, hang on before I ask you this next question, because I want to hit something, you know, potentially controversial or scary in this conversation. But before we touch it, um, there are people in my, in my world, I think, who might not understand the term purity culture and what that entails. They might not actually know what's communicated with that phrase. Would you mind unpacking what that means in your world before we step into this? Yeah. So when I refer to purity culture and the purity movement, it was largely a campaign <laughs> that came out in the nineties and was thriving in the nineties and early two thousands. And we also see large traces of that today. But essentially a campaign to get high school kids to not have sex outside of marriage. And this is where we got books like True Love Waits. And in Christian culture, we were taught things like courting or only to date with the intention of marriage or um, Joshua Harris's book, I, I Kiss Dating Goodbye, which, oh man, I just have so much empathy <laughs> for him. I mean, he wrote this book when he was like 20 or 21 about like quote unquote sexual purity and waiting until marriage and like only dating intentionally. And in that, I think he was used as a pawn in a lot of the evangelical culture to share a message of rules. So rules without a God vision. So to me, that's what the purity culture is. It's rules about sex and dating and body and gender roles without vision. Mm. And I think rules alone and definitely rules without vision, um, create a lot of shame and a huge backdoor because God's heart for us is not just behavior modification. It doesn't mean that some of what they were saying in that movement wasn't true. In my own research, I found out, yeah, okay. The Bible actually does invite us to abstain from sexual activity outside of marriage. But what I wish I would have been given is like the beautiful stories and scripture of passionate, amazing marriages. Like the book of song of Solomon is insane. I mean, it starts off with the bride giving enthusiastic and informed consent about what she wants to experience sexually in the bedroom with her spouse. And that would have been the most scandalous provocative thing in Hebrew culture to have a book on sex. In fact, it was so erotic and intense that most, most people weren't allowed to read it until they came of age. And it also would have been completely wild and in, in culturally to have to show, document a sexual experience where the woman's pleasure was of equal value to the male pleasure and where the physical wasn't just about the physical, but it pointed towards the relationship with the divine. Like when I started reading the scriptures, I was like, dang, there's some actual really beautiful, compelling reasons to experience sex within a monogamous committed relationship or of a marriage. Um, but that's not what purity culture gave us. And that's even largely not what the church today gave us, gives us. Um, last summer, I, I will spare you his name. Um, a very well-known pastor gave a relationship series and said things like, if you ever have sex outside of marriage, God could never use you. And if you ever have sex before marriage, you're like a house that has been burned down. And even when it gets rebuilt, you'll always smell this. It'll always smell charred. So you are a charred 
house burned that can never be used if you have sex outside of marriage. And, and yet those messages are hidden behind like God loves sex and these like very sound biteable moments in the sermon. But I just felt like, hold on, we're still saying that we're still making sex a salvation issue. Like we're still shaming people into abstinence. Are you kidding me? Like, oh my gosh, I just wanted to throw off my earrings and go (laughs) like the justice, the justice part of me um, was very upset. And also this particular pastor didn't wait until marriage to have sex and also has a very public porn addiction that he has acknowledged struggling with, but God seems to be using him. And so I think so much of what purity culture, whether we're talking about the nineties, two thousands, or even today, what are the messages that we're giving that are one dimensional and flattening the experience of being human and making salvation about what we do or do not do between our legs. Mm, wow. Totally. Shoot. Yeah. So yes, for sure. Wow. Um, brilliant. Okay. So the purity culture thing, Hey, this is what it looks like to be pure before God or whatever. It's going to be some, like related to your acceptability in the church and before the Lord and whatever, which we're like, Hey, that's a huge overstep. Okay. So in your journey, obviously you going to the, the text and having to do your own research and get to the bottom of what does it actually say here? And where did I learn this? And what's actually true? Whatever. Um, would you mind sharing? I know we don't have a ton of time to get into all this, but um, would you mind sharing a few things that you came across when you were like deconstructing your yeah. upbringing and purity culture and what you had found as opposed to what you were told, totally. how they were different and what that was like. Any, just any of your experiences or like your emotional even process mm-hmm. realizing like, this isn't the standard it's this, or, you, you know, just, I would love to just hear your narrative and your perspective on what you found as you were doing your research and I, obviously you share this in the, your book and walk your reader through it, but I'd love for you just to sh- share a couple of those things that, yeah. you know, in your process, what did you hit? Yeah, for sure. Okay. I'll hit, I'll hit a couple of things. And I think the, this one is probably felt one of the most important things to me is it felt like in culture, I was told I am my desire. So do what feels good. Live mm. your truth. Mm. If you want it, do it. As long as it feels good, as long as there's consent, do whatever feels good to you. And so in that, underneath that, I, what seemed to be the narrative was that I am my desire and I am the sum of my urges. Mm. And then when I looked at the experience I had in the church, I, I felt like, okay, my body's bad. My sexual desires gross. Don't talk about sexuality. Don't talk about sex. It's definitely taboo. Um, And the spirit is more elevated than the body, stuff like that. And so shut down your sexual desire. Don't talk about it. Don't think about talking about it until one day that may or may not happen when you do or do not get married. And so underneath that, the narrative that I experienced was shut down your desire so that I am not my desire. And so culture is I am and church is just shut it down. And then what I constantly experienced about Jesus in my research is that even we see in Matthew five and the sermon on the Mount that Jesus is always saying, you heard it said to you this, but I say to you this, and what, what Jesus was doing was acknowledging the cultural standpoint and the religious standpoint, and then offering a third way. And so I, if that was the pattern, then I was like, okay, God, so if I'm not my desire, like culture says, or, and I'm also not the absence of it, like, who am I? 
Like, what is my identity? And Genesis one says that who I am is a human made in the image of God. Like I am a child of God. That's who I am. The starting point of any conversation around sexuality doesn't start with my identity being my desire as culture would say, nor does my identity start with the absence of my desire. Like so much of the church says the conversation starts with, I am a Mago day made in the image of God. And God said that all humans have the God image in them. And so that taught me a few things that taught me, um, if the starting point of the conversation is a Mago day, I am made in the image of God. Um, and then I have to notice what the text does and doesn't say the text doesn't say that my spirit was made in the image of God, but my body wasn't. The text doesn't say that my right hand is good, but when guys get turned on and that happens to them, that's disgusting. The scriptures don't say that the male body is good or more sexual than the female body and that the woman's body was the devil's doing. No, God made all of it. So I think what we, what I saw in that Genesis one scripture was a lot of things. One, that my body is a part of the human experience that God created humans holistically, that even in my research, the idea that the spirit is better than the body isn't a Christian theology it's Gnostic dualism. So God created us holistically. So that means if God created us holistically, that my body is also a part of the God reflection, that my sexuality is not who I am. It's not my identity, but it's a part of who I am. And so really in that, just normalizing for me, it was healing to say, okay, like sexual desire is God given and God designed and good. Now, how now there's wisdom and healthy ways and unhealthy ways to walk forward in, in our sexual desires. Um, but to first just see in the scriptures like a normalization of a holistic experience of God and was was so powerful for me. Um, and then I feel like number two, I feel like honestly, some of the most compelling reasons that I found about waiting until marriage to have sex were not in scripture. It was me looking at my own experience and my own experiences and seeing, okay, wow. Um, when I entered the physical too early into a relationship, it clouded my discernment to be able to tell, is this person even a good fit for me? I dated a guy in my twenties off and on for several years who was a Christian, you know, quote unquote on paper, everything was all good, but he wasn't a good guy. And he never wanted to commit to me, always ran around on me. And I finally realized, I think if we never had kissed or gotten physical, I probably would have hung out with him once or twice and been like, oh, we have totally different callings for our lives. And we actually don't have anything in common. And so have a good life. So I found like real, real practical reasons why delaying the physical was a healthy thing. And then when I looked to the scriptures in the new Testament, I saw this, um, continuous phrase, flee from sexual morality, sexual morality, fornication. And I was like, what the heck does that even mean? I don't know what fornication is <laughs> what we throw around sexual immorality in the church. And then we attach our own meaning to it. But hermeneutics 101 Bible study 101 is 
before a text is for me, it was written by a specific person in a specific time in a specific place to a specific people for a specific reason. So I looked in, what does, what, what does that phrase actually mean? And sexual immorality is the word porneia in, in the Greek. And that's where we get words like pornography, obviously. And it means to flee from, so not to get as close as possible without technically crossing the line, which by the time I went on this journey, I was in a real fun game of mental gymnastics <laughs> of justifying what I was and wasn't doing. Oh. Well, if I left before the sun came out, I didn't really sleep over at his house. And if my underwear stayed around my ankle, I wasn't technically naked. And so I was in this mental gymnastics game because I had no vision. All I had was rules. So as long as I didn't do the one thing, I was good. Wow. Um, so the text is to flee and pornea refers to anything from bestiality to pedophilia, to adultery, to this general term of sexual activity outside of marriage. And so that was helpful for me to see that in the scripture, but it also did feel a little confusing. So what's it, what does it mean when we say to flee from sexual activity outside of marriage? At the very least, we can say that probably means sex. But from there, for me, the question was, well, then what's sex? <laughs> Is sex one specific act? Is sex penetrative intercourse? What about anal sex? What about oral sex? What about orgasm? Is orgasm a part of sex? What if you don't identify as heterosexual? Do heterosexuals have a monopoly on virginity? And so I think what I found in the scriptures was a God that has a lot to say about sex. And also like we get to approach the text, not flippantly, but with care and questions and, and then have to have the courage to flesh out. What do, what does this actually mean? What does it mean to flee from pornea? What does it mean? Like if I'm abstaining, what am I abstaining from? And so I think when I went to the scriptures, I saw this robust, almost like it felt like I went from the black and white wizard of Oz to like the colorful experience. Um, I just feel like, wow, like God actually has so much more to say than I actually thought. And God's heart for sex is beautiful and robust and layered. And it's, it's this physical expression of the spiritual commitment and that's beautiful. And there's also nuance we get to unpack together. What, what does it mean to flee from this? If we choose to flee from it. So I feel like I'm going a little bit in circles, I feel like, but those are some thoughts. Yeah. Do you have any, I, is there anything I, that feels like unclear or weird about what I just shared? No, not unclear. Or weird. Um, I love it. I think that was really helpful and interesting. And I want to, I guess I have another question in the midst of it. Yeah. Um, so I'm wondering what you think about, cause as I'm hearing you, I'm like thinking, I love that you are, moving toward the subject of sex and talking about it and the nitty gritty within it, you know? Um, I think from my experience and even a lot of church leaders that I, that I am in relationship with and even people obviously that I've experienced in the church culture, church doesn't talk about sex very much. And when we mm -hmm. do talk about it, it's like, hey, stay away, run, mm -hmm. avoid it, abstinence, blah, whatever. And so we're being told what we can't do, what we shouldn't do, what's gonna happen if we do do it. I don't know that 
young people, especially in the church, are being set up for success in terms of what can you do? Like, mm. like you said, having vision yeah. for what you could have. And, and usually vision in the conversation right now at large is generally, hey, wait till you get married and then everything gets mm. to happen. But until then, mm. you don't get to go to the theme park at all. <laughs> and that's great. that's great in theory, except for our bodies still have hormones. We still yeah. are around the opposite gender or what, you know, whatever. We're still having sexual, like, energy that we're encountering in our lives mm -hmm. what are we supposed to do with that the church doesn't have a ton to say about it so i love that that's an element to this that you're bringing to the table um i'm curious like do you feel like in the work you're doing for, that you've done for yourself but also that you're bringing to this conversation are you having to compensate for what parents and then the church haven't done for christians when it comes to the subject of sex or do you feel like that's a different conversation entirely what do you mean by that? Like sex ed or like sex ed and not just like education in terms of what is it and how does it work, but also like, what do we do with this? And cause yeah. I know for me, and I don't think that I'm not unique. I, a lot of people, you know, around me, our parents didn't talk to us about sex. It, would, yeah. it just never happened. We never had, we didn't even have the mm -hmm. birds and the bees conversation, let alone anything beyond that, which as mm -hmm. if that would be enough. Right. And so my thought process is like, do you feel like the work you're having to do here is one, you know, responding to oppressive systemic, you know, dynamic that got created in a culture that, you know, for whatever reason, mm -hmm. but also potentially an absence of, you know, parent parenting in terms of addressing this subject with their kids? Or do you feel like that's, it's not that. It's oh, 100%. Absolutely. And um, in fact, I'll give two book recommendations. This New York Times journalist, Peggy Orenstein, wrote two books. One is called Girls and Sex and the other is called Boys and Sex. And they are some of the most fascinating reads that I did in my research. And basically in Girls and Sex, she documents women for about 10 years and interviews young high school, college age women about sexual encounters, sexual experiences, consent, even stuff like purity culture and abstinence culture. And in both books, what she talks about is how most people, when they're polled about how how did you actually, how are you sexually formed? What's your sexual formation? So we talk about discipleship. We talk about spiritual formation, but we don't have a great sexual formation. And the majority of people are in, informed their sexuality through pornography. Mm. And why is that? Well, because parents don't want to talk about it. So parents, oh, this is going to be awkward and I don't know what to say. And so I'm going to leave that to school or the church or culture. So school, I mean, I didn't have a sex ed class and most of, I think I had one thing in fourth grade where the girls went to a room by themselves for 30 minutes and watched a video and the boys went to the room by themselves and watched a video. And we all came out kind of giggling and that was my sex ed. And then in church, all we've ever heard is bad, shut it down, gross. Don't talk about it. Don't think about it. It's basically be an asexual robot until you get a ring on your finger. And then you're supposed to be a lady in the streets, but a freak in the bed. <laughs> and that also is not a robust vision. We've just said no, no, no. And we've made, we've made sexuality only about sex and orgasm. And so where are people going to learn about sex? They're going to porn, pornography. <laughs> 
And um, that is a huge disservice. That's a huge disservice to us. And also something that's, I found super fascinating um, in my research was that abstinence only teaching. So abstinence only sex ed, which is, you know, purity culture and most schools legally can only teach abstinence only in America, which I thought was interesting either that, or they can't teach it at all, but abstinence only rhetoric produces higher STDs and higher unwanted pregnancies or unexpected pregnancies than any other type of sex ed. And people who in high school and college commit to abstinence, quote unquote, have like, it's either four or six times are either four or six times higher rate of anal sex in oral sex than people who were given a more robust sexual formation. And so, so yeah, I feel like what I'm, I think those things are wild to me. So how do we teach our young people, teach ourselves how to have a more robust, holistic sexual ethic, sexual formation? How can we stay in alignment with scriptures and what we believe God to be teaching and teach something more than don't do it. Don't think about it. (laughs) Or you won't have a seat at the table. Like that's not working. (laughs) It's not working. And so, yes, I feel like what I'm trying to do is to teach people how to have a holistic, healthy sexual ethic and to expand our mindset on what is sexuality is sexuality just when private parts touch are, are we, are we really compartmentalized? until marriage? Can I wait until marriage to have sex and still be connected to my sexual desire in a way that feels honoring to myself, to God, to my faith and to others? Mm -hmm. I think the answer to that is yes, but we have to be willing to dig into those conversations and invite community. And, and so, yeah, I, I hope to, I hope that I'm doing that and I hope I offer that and, and what I'm teaching and exploring. Um, but also in that, I think sometimes we come away with some of these conversations with more questions than answers. And I think that can be good. Like if there's something that I've said that a person is like, well, what does that even mean? I don't know if I agree with that. Great. Let it put you on a journey of seeking the scriptures. And what do you think sex means? And what do you think abstinence means? And is oral sex sex? Why or why not? Um, what, what role does orgasm play is masturbation a sin and, and be willing to, I'm not saying agree with me on everything. I'm not saying that at all. I'm like, let's do the work. Let's research the scriptures. Let's seek the heart of God. Let's do this in community and normalize it. Because when we keep these conversations in the dark, that is where shame festers. And then things just come out sideways. I think it's no accident that we are living in the fall of purity culture and in a time in the evangelical church where pastors are being exposed for sexual scandal on almost a weekly basis. That's not a coincidence. Interesting. Okay. This is probably my last like question on the subject. And then I've, we've got to land this plane, but <laughs> I have so many questions. I'd love to ask. Ah! Okay. Um, I, I, as I'm listening, I'm also trying to like, be in the minds of some of the people I imagine are listening to my podcast. I think I've got several, I think a chunk of the people who listen to my space, my world. Oh, um, my space. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, who are your top five? Who are your top six? <laughs> we just went over like Gen Z's head, I think. Right. Totally. That's hilarious. <laughs> my space. What's that? <laughs> right. Oh man. Um, 
one thing that's coming up in my mind as you're talking about some of this is we've got conservative Christians mm -hmm. and then progressive Christians, right? And we're getting into the right. political sphere a little bit in mm -hmm. terms of values and practices and whatever. And so I'm wondering if you want to speak to, because I'm, you know, we're not talking about politics or whatever, but what would you say to, because what I've heard from a lot of conservative believers whom I'm, who I dearly love and am in relationship with, and, you know, I understand where they're coming from, their concern with education, sex education, especially with younger people is, yeah. I think they have a bit of a, I don't know if it's a paranoia, but like, there's an agenda from the left that's trying to over-sexualize our kids and get them to explore and accept these mm -hmm. ideals that are not biblical, that are going to tear down the family unit or whatever. Mm -hmm. um, so in terms of like education, actually eliminating all these other adverse effects of the abstinence only approach, how would yeah. you respond to those conservative listeners who are like, uh, it sounds like what you're proposing though is going to create a, a, an over-sexualized mm. culture where these kids mm. are going to go rampant and crazy and whatever. Mm. What do you, what would you say to that? Yeah. I, I mean, that's, that's such a good question. I'm so glad you asked that because even as I've been on this own journey, I've asked myself, how would I, how do I want to teach my kids about sex? Huh. And all, like, I think it's important for me to say in this, especially to someone who might identify as more conservative that at the end of this journey, I actually ended up more conservative than when I started. I am choosing to wait until marriage to have sex. And I've actually pulled back my physical boundaries quite a bit since going on this journey, because I now feel connected to my heart and God's heart for intimacy. So actually fleshing all this stuff out, didn't make me want to run around and have casual sex. It actually showed me that God doesn't have a low view of sex, but a really high view of sex and intimacy. And so I feel like that's important to just acknowledge that even in my own story, like I still am choosing to wait and abstain. And I think it's a really important question to ask. So how do we talk about this stuff and how do we navigate this without hypersexualizing our kids and our young people even more? And it's a question I'm still trying to figure out myself, but I mean, I can give you one example of what I'm trying to do. Mm -hmm. And I have, so to me, after all of my research, scriptures do seem pretty clear that the invitation as a follower of Jesus is to avoid sex before marriage. Like that to me does seem pretty clear. And it's also not a salvation issue. And in every other area of our lives, we have space for each other to be on a growth journey. So if I struggle with addiction or pride or ego or not knowing how to spend money well or gossip, I mean, pride, gossip, legalism, let's just say that alone in the church. Like, do any of us struggle with that? We give each other grace and space to really navigate that. But when it comes to sex, physical boundaries in the church, it's like one strike and you're out. And so how can we not just give hall pass to everyone to do whatever they want, but approach the conversation around sex with just as much grace as we do in other areas of our lives. And I have a young person in my life that I really love. And this young person really loves Jesus. And she is having sex outside of marriage and has been for a while and, and in high school. And 
she didn't want to tell me any of that because she thought, oh my gosh, Kat is not going to think she's a Christian or Kat's going to judge me. And so how I've approached this relationship with, with this person in my life that I really love is not like, you're wrong. You're going to hell. Like, don't you see what the scriptures say? I've said, okay, like, let's talk about, let's, let's research what, you know, scriptures have to say. And also like, if this is the decision you're going to make, if you're going to have sex outside of marriage, let's talk about how to do that in a healthy way. Let's talk about STDs. Let's talk about consent. Um, Cause I think what happens is we stop at don't do this. And then because there's nothing outside of that, we don't equip people to enter into sexual encounters with like it with healthy expressions, like, okay, so are you gonna use condoms, stuff like that. And, you know, this is a conversation I didn't know that I would have with this person, but I just felt like mm. I'm not just going to like not talk to this person anymore because she's making a decision that I am not in alignment with, like, we're going to still have healthy conversations about sex. And so I think even saying that feels vulnerable to share with you, Mike. Cause I'm like, Oh man, is everyone going to think that I'm like, well, do it, whatever, whatever is your truth. That's what you do. I'm like, no, I'm not saying that. But I also like, it does feel like a hard balance to say like, yeah, scripture says this and it's not a salvation issue. And like, how do we love someone well, who is going to make this decision? You know, do we just like excommunicate them from our lives or from our seat at the table and be like, well, I guess if you're going to have sex, then just do, do it however you want. Like, I don't think that's helpful either. So how do we step into those spaces? I think it's hard. And I don't think that there's like a clear answer and it kind of wrapping it all up. It makes me see how and why pastors for a long time only want to approach it from the pulpit as like, don't do this. It's so much easier to say that than like, be like, wow, like this is hard and abstinence is hard and to be 35 and not having sex is hard. So let's talk about that. (laughs) 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 Totally. must be funny, but it's, if it weren't so sexually frustrating. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Yeah. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah. I I mean, I think I'm still like in a space where as I consider it, I'm like, yeah, what is, the solution. If I'm like, if I'm going to critique and criticize what the generations before us have given us, I'm like, this wasn't it. This wasn't enough mm-hmm. or whatever. I'm like, okay, well, Mike, what would you offer? How would you, yeah. you know, like step up then? What are you going to offer mm-hmm. then you the next generation? If you think what you were handed didn't work. And I, I'm with you. I have questions. Um, and I think, yeah, if I were to say things that I would engage with the Lord in, in relationships with people that I'm influencing and how they're navigating their sexual world. Mm-hmm. I bet there are things that I would say here that people would be like, oh, it would sound probably unbiblical or un- unchristian. I'm like, actually, I don't think it's either of those things. And I actually experienced the Holy Spirit this way toward me. Mm-hmm. Why would I change how I engage with other people different than how he treats me? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. In terms of compassion and grace and patience mm-hmm. and humility and mercy and those kinds of things again, like you said, not to endorse sin or, you know, heinous, dysfunctional or destructive behavior, but also recognizing that God isn't demanding perfection from people and meets them where they are and Mm -hmm. isn't terrified or like distrusting of their capacity to walk Mm -hmm. with him and choose in the midst of erroneous actions or whatever 
So yeah, I'm so also like kind of picking at this stuff. And I think yeah. I just, I love that we're talking about it. And I think that um, the only way we're going to find better solutions and better and create better culture is by like what you said, normalizing this conversation, mm -hmm. and it not being taboo anymore. And people mm -hmm. being able to discuss these things without feeling shameful or brave, even like, does it need to require bravery to admit that you're a sexual being and you're having mm -hmm. these, because we're all having these experiences. Yeah. How are we still accepting that we're just pretending like it's not happening that there mm -hmm. isn't just hypocrisy all over the table on this subject in the church. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, for sure. Oh my gosh. Yes. It's, it's such a, <clears throat> I, it, it just is such a heartbreak to me that we've made Christianity about whether or not you drink alcohol, <laughs> who you're attracted to and if you're having sex or not, I'm wow. like, man, it just doesn't seem to be the gospel that I read about. And you can think that I'm saying something that I may or may not be saying in the statement that I just said, but the, what I am saying is that salvation is Jesus alone, grace alone to the thief on the cross. Jesus said, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus was like, but were you also having sex outside of marriage? <laughs> were you drinking alcohol? <laughs> no, that's not like, that isn't the Jesus invitation. So how do we heed the invitation of the scriptures that our bodies are a house for the holy and that our, um, that our physical does represent what we believe on the inside and also still hold tight to that. Like relationship with Jesus is like grace upon grace, upon grace, upon grace and being human is hard and we are going to blow it. And is it possible that we could give each other space to be human and seek God? Um, and walk it out together. Like, it just makes me so sad that we've made it about, we've made Christianity about like, quote unquote purity and what you do or do not do between your legs. I'm like, we've missed it. Mm. We've missed it. Totally. We've missed the mark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, totally. That's awesome. Thank you. Okay. Last question, as far as like interview stuff is concerned. Um, I ask everyone that I interview on my podcast, this question, um, this is the Confessions of a Reformer podcast. So I'm curious, Kat, with your line of work or your experience, and it doesn't have to be about sex, it can be about whatever, but mm -hmm. in your area of expertise or passion or where you feel called or where you've engaged in, as you've been influencing and maybe even pushing the envelope and doing your own work of like really getting to the bottom of what you believe and what's true and who is God and what is he doing here? Mm -hmm. Is there a confession you would care to share about that journey, that process um, that might even feel like, oh, I don't think I should share this with people, but... Mm -hmm you know, I, I wonder about this or I don't, I'm not clear on this or I actually believe this and I, don't, I know I'm not supposed to, but I do, or, you know, whatever, anything yeah. in that sphere that you'd care to share. Totally. Um, yeah. I mean, two things right off the bat come to my mind. And one of them is in the wakes of being in the pandemic for, you know, or a year now, I was super involved in my church in New York and loved it. Part of prayer ministry on all these teams, leading a small group, all the things. And then to not physically go to a church building for over a year now, it's just been really interesting to realize how much, so much of my identity was wrapped up in church culture. And it's been interesting to kind of unpack and question like moving forward when, when the world opens up. And I know that there's a lot of places in the U S where churches are open up and um, the places that I've been living, they haven't necessarily been open. So it's been all online. And so just kind of 
thinking through moving forward when church opens back up? Is there any way that I want to show up differently? And I think also in my space from going to church, I hadn't had a break from church in 20 years. <laughs> like I, it's just been a part of my life, like yeah. ever since I became a Christian. And right. so it's felt confusing to, to think, oh man, like when, when things open back up, like what, how do I want, what is my relationship like with the church? Cause the last year it's felt really, really, really painful to see how polarized the church is, how much of bullies Christians can be. And, um, I don't, yeah, we don't have to get too much into like the politics of, of so much of what's happened, but I've just felt like, God, where's my place in the church? Like, God, you love the church. And it seems like hard to feel, figure out where I fit into it all. Um, so I feel like that came to my mind and what was the other one? Something else came to my mind. Oh, I am doing the whole, like read the Bible in a year and I'm already like two months behind. Um, (laughs) I'm like still on January. Um, (laughs) and I think in the wakes of like me too movement and seeing all, you know, one of my uh, pastor of a church that I was at for a long time was exposed for a really damaging, um, affair recently. And, um, so to see like the abuse of power in the church and in our culture has felt so disillusioning and disorienting. And then I'm reading the old Testament and I'm seeing like abuse of power after abuse of power. Like, I don't know, man, it seems like, it seems like God, you're blessing Abraham's abuse of power. Like he pimped out his wife multiple times. Like that's messed up. Like he had one good moment where he was willing to sacrifice his son. Um, (laughs) but I'm like, man, and even David, I'm like, David abused his power. And I have a real big problem with David. Paul in the new Testament was super egotistical. Like, I'm just like, man, God, I'm struggling with some of these narratives and it feels vulnerable to admit. Um, But what I do know is that like, when I am honest with myself and God, with where I'm really at, like, those are the places Jesus has met me in such unexpected ways. Even when it feels scary to be like, I don't know, man, like, is Abraham a good dude? Like, why does it seem like God's blessing him? (laughs) Um, So I, I, that's kind of like, I'm just digging into the scriptures in a different way right now and just trying to reconcile that stuff. And it's been hard. Mm. Wow. Awesome. Thank you for sharing that. That's mm-hmm. fascinating. And I think those are valid points. It's so interesting, mm-hmm. both in, you know, your relationship with the church and whatever in light of this pandemic and the way Christians have behaved in the last year or so. And then, yeah, with what we see in the, in the book, even old and new, you're like, wait a what second. Is this? Like, is this, <laughs> is this an example? Is this templative? Are we supposed to follow this? Or is this something we're supposed to say no to and know better for, you know, mm-hmm. fascinating. I love that you're thinking that way. Kat, I so respect the honesty and integrity that you bring to how you wrestle with the text, right? And you're willing to like question these things. And But you're not just questioning them to give yourself permission to live however you want. You're questioning them because you genuinely want to get to the bottom of it. I love that. I so respect mm-hmm. that. I think it's so necessary and important and essential. So thank, thank you for doing that and for just being yeah, I think an example is probably, I'm not trying to put this on you, but like for being an example for what it looks like to be a, a current relevant believer, genuinely rising to the occasion to meet the issues of the day and mm-hmm. continue to value and regard scripture and your relationship with the Lord and get in there and draw lines in the sand and choose how you want to participate based on conviction that comes from genuine 
pursuit. I love that. I think that's all we can really ask from anybody who's participating in any of this, right? You're doing the thing. I love it. I so respect it. I so commend the work you're doing. Thank, Thank you for you. doing it. Yeah. So Thank you. that being said, how can people, I have things I would say, but I think it might be better for them, for them to hear this from you directly. Yeah, how can people sure. plug into what you're doing, get access to your stuff, you know, all mm -hmm. the things hit us in all the ways. What are, what are the ways to get a hold of and be part of your world? Yeah. So I'm, um, you can check out my book, Sexless in the City. You can go to sexlessinthecitybook.com or go to Amazon, Kindle, Audible, wherever. And like so much of what we talked about is just kind of scratching the surface of what we, what I get into in the book. And then I'll in the book, I also, the, the book doesn't come out till April 20th, April 20th. That's okay. right. Got April it. 20th. Yeah. Okay. You can pre-order it now. I don't know when it's, this episode's going live. Um, but what I try to do in the book also, every chapter ends with like journal prompts and processing because so oh. much of this stuff just brings up a lot. And I want to really carry your heart well in that. And yeah, I would um, say you do very much come across pastoral at, in this book as you're giving us mm -hmm. these things you have to wrestle through and question. You're also still caring for us and giving us a way to process, which I thought was super conscientious and accommodating. Thanks, Mike. I appreciate yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, my website and social media is The Refined Woman and my weekly podcast is The Refined Collective. And I can send this to you because I feel like we kind of started the conversation of, so what does it mean to like, can I embrace my sexual desire and still abstain? Um, I actually have a podcast series on that, like how to embrace your sexuality when and if you're not having sex um, and a, a blog post on my on my um, on my website that I can send you Nice. not to mention it's like three chapters in my book. Um, but yeah, just to like give people a little, I feel like we talked a lot of theory and I don't want, I, to me, I always want to give people something to hang their hat on. So I'll send you those so you Perfect. can link to folks as well. Yes. Let's do that. Cool. Great. Okay, cool. So, um, you guys, I follow Kat on Instagram and she's got her Instagram stories are awesome there she has a, just a range of things that she shares she's super real on there she'll post and she's dancing and you know are you on tiktok as well uh yeah but not really <laughs> please don't find me on tiktok please don't i mean it's just me <laughs> like being absurd yeah, totally. Yeah. Same. Me wanting to learn those dances. Yeah. Not really wanting anyone to see him, but just wanting to learn them for myself. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. Great. Well, you guys, um, this is Kat Harris. She is a reformer. She's doing the work and just putting it out there for people to be able to join her in this process. So I hope you guys have enjoyed her as much as I have today and also just the work that she's doing. Get her book, April 20th. You can pre-order it now. Get into the conversation. Even if you're married with like five kids. Like, I think this is still worth looking into because we only have a continuous, like repetitive narrative that isn't working, that it's still circulating in the church. If you're going to think differently about this, you're going to have to seek voices and influence outside of the box in order to mm -hmm. think differently at this present point in time. I think that will change. But right now, this the general narrative is still the thing we've been poking at throughout this episode you're going to need to find people like Kat who are saying something else to be able to consider something else if you're not thinking about these things on your own. So I think this would be a great resource, even if you're past your single days, you're married with kids, whatever. It's still helpful for you to consider how do you want to invest in your kids' sexual upbringing and journey and perspective? And you do want them to be shamed the same way you were, you know, and living in that kind of context, or do you want something different for them? Like this is still valuable and relevant. So anyway, Kat, thank you so much for being on here. We super appreciate your voice and your influence. Um, love it. 
Uh, and you guys, um, you know, I'm going to start po posting more podcast episodes as um, they are coming. I took a little bit of a hiatus there, but we're going to be cranking them out again here soon. So I hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> we did it.